Welcome to the Poetry Show. This is Daphne Stanford, your host. And we have in the studio with us Richard Tillinghast. Thank you for coming in, Richard. My pleasure. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. And uh, just to introduce Richard, he's the author of 10 books of poetry and four of creative nonfiction. His most recent poetry books are Selected Poems, that came out in 2009, and Dirty August, Translations from the Turkish, all poet Edip Kansever, also in 2009, and in collaboration with his daughter, Julia Claire Tillinghast. In 2008, his third nonfiction book, Finding Ireland, was given the Four Award Magazine's Best Book of the Year Award for Travel Essays. Having taught at Harvard, Berkeley, and the University of Michigan, he retired in 2005 and spent the next five years living in Ireland. He was a 2010-11 Guggenheim Fellow in Poetry, Richard's new travel book, Istanbul, City of Forgetting and Remembering, and actually Journeys uh, to the... Oh my journeys gosh. into the Mind of the World. Yeah. Yes, Journeys into the Mind of the World, which I love the title of, what <laughs> <laughs> we'll you. be talking about today as well. And he currently divides his time between Tennessee, Hawaii, and California. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and let me give you your book back. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, it's like... Don't know where to begin. There's so much to talk about, but <laughs> I just I'm so happy that you're able to come into the studio today. And um, so, tell me a little bit about, uh, gosh, I guess just how you got your start writing. I know you talk about it a little bit in your travel memoirs, but not not tons. Um, I know you you studied with Richard uh, Richard Lowell, which is pretty amazing. That was amazing. Uh, I. I think I started writing in maybe junior high school or, or high school, and I just remember reading two different kinds of poetry. One was poetry in rhyme and meter with a Southern poet like John Carl Ransom, and then nobody reads Carl Sandburg anymore, but that I learned these two things, uh, writing in rhyme and meter and writing in free verse. Sure. And one reason that Carl Sandburg's poetry was so inspiring to me was that it was so simple and so easy. The, the, there wasn't a technique that was very difficult to learn. And I remember saying to myself, I can do this. <laughs> and ever since then, I, I've kind of tried to write in what people call form and in what people call free verse, depending on the subject matter of the poem. It seems to happen fairly organically, doesn't it? It seems like it should, like the poem should dictate that usually, right? There are certain kinds of things that really kind of want to be in a tight form, and then mm -hmm. there are certain, I mean, I'm in the middle of a road trip right now, and anything you write about traveling or being on the road or the ocean or anything like that kind of wants to be in free verse. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I think of, well... Well, you know, Whitman was one of the first people who kind of brought that kind of to the fore. Was that kind of how, what was the most of the free words that you that you read? And yeah, something like, like Whitman and now those like long lines, that free mm -hmm. flowing stuff. And I don't think it's any accident that one of Whitman's best known poems is called The Song of the Open Road. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I mean, <laughs> you, you write about, you know, spending time in Cafe Triste. I've been there. It's, it's uh, always so fun. Great place, huh? Yeah. Frilling in Gelli's, San Francisco. He's still alive, man. I'm telling you. I know. You, it's, it's incredible. It's and he's still, <laughs> I don't know how old he is, but he's he's in good shape. He yeah. walks around and everything. And every now and again, when you're sitting in there 
in the uh, cap, uh, Cafe Trieste who would come walking in, and it's really cool. Uh, okay, Cafe Trieste, that's right. And that's on, that's the one on the corner, Yeah, right? it's on uh, Upper Grant Street in yeah. San Francisco. In North Beach? Yeah, in North Beach, okay. where all the beat generation stuff happened. Right. Well, I noticed that you, you dedicated a, a poem to Gary Snyder. I actually marked that as one of the poems that I liked, but I just... Uh, did you know him? Yeah, I did. Or and do you? I, I mean, I am not in touch with him anymore but he's a really big inspiration for me and i think for a lot of people anybody who tries to write about the environment owes a debt to gary snyder oh for sure my hat's off to gary snyder he was born in 1930 so he's not very uh several of those poets of that generation the ones that have survived are really old now. I correspond with Donald Hall, mm. who was born in 1927 or 28. Oh, wow. And uh, we already mentioned Gary Snyder. And then there's W.S. Merwin, who also lives in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. really? And he is, oh, nice. he is yeah, getting up there. You know, he's about 90 or something. He's yeah. kind of blind. And uh, But um, I was reading a poem of his today online. He's such a wonderful poet writer yeah he he is and he's been around for so long and um i you know a lot of the what it was coming to my mind when i was reading a lot of your work and i guess i'll maybe more of the travel essays made me think of this but but a lot of your poems are about you know being in a certain place uh, different parts of the world and it, it feels like this this form of um poet poeting i guess being a poet <laughs> that yeah. that is that is maybe not as common as it used to be i don't know i'm not really sure but but i know that it goes back a, a long way the sense of a poem having a definite location mm-hmm. and <clears throat> i think that there's a lot in american thinking that owes a, that owes a lot to native american traditions because when you read about what some of those people say like the lakota people the plains indians mm-hmm. it's always nothing is true except from a particular observer at a particular place and that the sense of of being in place is very american and it's very native american too hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of, well, I think of Gary Snyder that you're talking about. I mean, just the how much he, he was into the, you know, backpacking around and yeah. and then going to Japan, of course. And uh-huh. I mean, um, but it, it feels like there's this uh, need to kind of, uh, to me, I, it seems like, you know, like going, bringing other cultures to the fore because we like it's almost something that we writers can do to, to open up a cultural conversation I guess about it because that's that's half of how we you know translating like you've translated yeah poetry um, that's the only way that we're able to be exposed to it I think it's really important particularly mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. with all this uh, stuff about America first well it's not really I, I think that's very short-sighted it's not really America first. We're part of the world, and the the idea of denying that we're part of the world just seems like one of the craziest ideas that anybody ever came up with. Well, you know, traveling is really it seems like the 
you know, the best way to, to get to know a place, I always say you can't know a place until you've been there, really, you know. Yeah, like, and, and in a way you can't know your own place until you've been mm-hmm. other places. Like the, we talked a little bit about the South. I'm from mm-hmm. the South, and I never really I, – I, when I lived in the South, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. I hated it. <laughs> and it was such a relief to finally leave, to see Memphis, Tennessee recede in the – in the you know mirror of my car and the rearview mirror in my car but now I really enjoy going back there it's because I can see it I've seen all these other places and and that helps you understand what's special about your own place right um so talk about that a little I'd like you to you know where how did you where did you get started with I know you said that you started writing when you were an adolescent as most many of us do um But uh, how, how did that inform your, your writing and, um, you know, where did you kind of, where, where do you associate most with your writing, I guess, or, yeah, just how did that get started? And I felt a very strong sense of place in the South, and I don't know if you ever read uh, John Crow Ransom. People don't read him much anymore, but I have, yeah. he's a terrific writer, and oh. he brought into his poetry these small towns in Tennessee and I really knew that because that those were the places that my family was from Mm -hmm. I I really related to the to those places and one of the things southern writers are famous for being able to tell stories in fact it's kind of a cliche about southern writers or southern people in general that southern people are good storytellers and so mostly that happens in fiction people like Flannery O'Connor and Eudora Welty and mm-hmm. William Faulkner but I, I was attracted to poetry because you could tell you could tell stories but you were telling them in a very small space and that's one of the things that I've continued to like to do to try to tell stories and and, and Irish people too which you spent yeah. some time in Ireland <laughs> <laughs> yeah Irish people and southern people are very similar and and one of the things Irish people and southern people have in common is that they're rather opaque to the outside observer everybody has their notion about southern people and one of the ideas we have about Irish people is they're they're these really happy-go-lucky people you know when Irish eyes are smiling and, and all that stuff but really Irish people have about the darkest view of life imaginable, and that's what makes their humor so great because they're hmm. they're uh, they have this really sardonic sense of humor, which you don't understand until you've been there for a while. No, I I I Ireland is one of the most favorite places that I've ever been. I went I was there. I went there after uh, 9/11, and uh, it was great because someone was flying. <laughs> Yeah, and that was a, a great time to travel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I met a one-eyed writer. He had an eye patch, and he he lived on a grant. Anyways, it's just, um, <laughs> and I was so envious. I was like, oh my gosh, this seems like the life. But but I I can see that. I mean, it's it's because it's a fairly isolated part of the world in a way, and um, and they've had a very dark and difficult history for sure. We kind of tend to forget that. I mean, yeah. there was mass starvation in that country only about a uh, hundred and fifty years ago, and. Yeah. Um, the people who didn't starve immigrated and they ended up in this country and they 
manage to perpetuate a sense of their country that's the Irish eyes are smiling kind of thing, mm -hmm. which was a real interesting distortion of their own history. I sometimes wonder how, how conscious all of that was. <laughs> well, I would like you to read something. Good, um, I'd like to. <laughs> um, what would you like to read? Uh, well, we were kind of talking about... Um, well, we, 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 we haven't mentioned the, the idea of, specifically the idea of political poetry, but uh, I have this poem called Ars Poetica, and maybe mm -hmm. I would read some of that. And you, you read, wrote that about 9-11? Uh, right after 9-11, mm -hmm. um, it seemed to me that a lot of the things people were saying about those incidents uh, represented kind of a distortion. So, yeah, the poem, you can kind of hear the poem as a reaction against what people were saying about 9-11. So, an, an Ars Poetica is a art of poetry, kind of what you think poetry should be doing. And right. So I'll start from the beginning of it. Brush from my heart the fine particulate matter of the World Trade Center. What's left of it floating in the air we breathe keeps us from thinking straight. Revive me now with anything low-tech, homemade, hand-woven from living fibers, written with a fountain pen. Show me lacquered Chinese red of a box with three lucky coins in it, thumbed turquoise, of Tibetan prayer beads hidden from soldiers. Even the powder blue tragic compromised star six-pointed on a field of white flying over a tank that grinds down on Bethlehem. Lift my eyes to the disk of the midday sun seen through clouds where our towers stood. Slow me down for once in my life to the gate of a camel crossing from Peshawar to Kandahar with bags of rice strapped to its saddle while the camel driver cranes up over his shoulder at the vapor trails of a B-52. I'm going to skip now to the end of the poem. I too love the primary colors of the flag, its classic red and white stripes, its machine-sewn stars spangled over a field of blue breezing in the September sky this day of days. But I've had it with God bless America. Let blessings fall wherever there is need for them. My country, it's not just tis of thee, I sing. When the inevitable clash of civilization's crowd gets cranked up, help me contemplate harmony, play me the world's music. Let human fingers pluck the strings of instruments fashioned from living forests. Speak to me in the wavery melismas of the call to prayer that a billion people hear this morning from a minaret before dawn, while I feel in my bones the bronze reverberations of a bell that memorializes all we have lost. Hmm. That's lovely. Thank you. I, I can't help but juxt that image of the, the camel and the and the, the fighter plane going over, right? It's <laughs> yeah. really powerful. And it's interesting because, yeah, well, 
can you talk about that? I don't know. It just it seems like the the power dynamics there is kind of an interesting. The, yeah, the power dynamics because yeah. think of. I didn't really mean for this interview to get so political, but somehow it is. I think it's appropriate to this moment in American history. But just think of a, a drone operator, somebody sitting in a little room, not too different from the room that we're sitting in right now, seeing things on the screen and, and uh, guiding these drones and think about thinking about what, uh, what target they're going to attack. And the pilot of a B-52 flying over Afghanistan would just, you know, have the view that people, the figures on the ground would kind of look like ants. But it, it's what I did in the poem was, what about if you, if you just telescope your view down to some guy who's riding on the back of a camel and he's got these bags of rice to feed his family strapped on and he looks up and he sees that B-52 overhead. I think it's important for us to try to understand all these geopolitical realities from the standpoint mm -hmm. of the actual people who are being affected. For sure. Definitely. I mean, gosh, yeah. I There's so much going on there. I. It's just that but the Ars Poetica, I, I, I think that's really interesting. Like, how can you talk about that in that poem? Because I, I mean, I, I know what an Ars Poetica is, but I, it's interesting in light of that particular subject. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a challenging question for me because really what an Ars Poetica tries to do is tell, is talk about values and what the values of one's particular poetry are. Mm -hmm. um, and so my idea is in that poem is to get back to concrete realities and start from there, which is a, actually has a lot to do with what we were just talking about before. The sense of place is very concrete. And I'm not a, a writer or a thinker who relates to abstract propositions at all. I think Ezra Pound was right when he said, when in his advice to poets, when he said, go in fear of abstractions. Mm. And that's always been, that's never been difficult for me. I, I, I don't really, I'm not a super smart guy in terms of big ideas I, big ideas don't go very far with me well and that's that's probably what it used to be more uh, about right like right our poetic let's let's talk about the the concept of poetry what is my poetry aim to do what is the greater concept but it, but it is it's not it's not big and lofty it's 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 concrete and and real and i like that about that you know it's like maybe that's what your your philosophy is more right like let's look that's at what's right. in front of us you know yeah let's look what what's in front of us and yeah. big i i think you might say uh, uh hypothetically the world's worst poem would be a sonnet called truth <laughs> <laughs> sure you it know, sounds horrible. <laughs> it does. But it's not too different from the political idea of, say, freedom. Right. People make a big deal sure. of this abstraction called freedom. What is that? Yeah. You know, that's a big subject, but 
yeah it's related to what we're talking about for sure no totally um so yeah so i I guess um can you talk a little bit about kind of what so what uh speaking of things in front of you you know what do you you tend to write about more i mean i know because i've read some of it but uh what do you like to focus on i guess or what what do you feel like you know you were drawn to in the past and also now because people change as writers right yeah very much so i you know travel seems to be a big part of travels and travel is related to the sense of place but one of the things that I'm trying, that I not trying to do, but I that I find myself doing in my poetry now is, I, and I know this sounds simple or oversimplified, but just to say anything, not and not, I mean, not censor my own thoughts and just uh, be totally out there. And, and it, that's one of the things that I was doing in this uh, recent book, Wayfaring Stranger, because. Mm-hmm. It has lots of poems in it that could be described as political or maybe public. And I'll just mention, there's one called I Remember the Bees, which is a subject that concerns everybody. What's happening to the bees? Why, you yeah. know, why are they dying off? And there's no re- we don't have time to get into the reality of that, why that's happening. And then there's one called The Names of Roses, which talks about how difficult women's lives are in a place like Ireland where they mm. where certain things are expected of of women and uh, the idea of that poem is kind of the one little object of beauty in this Irish countrywoman's life was the roses that she grew in her hmm. yard because otherwise she had such a difficult life and I already read a bit from Ars Poetica. Then there's a poem called The Loneliness of Benedict the Sixteenth, mm. the, the previous pope. The clerical sexual abuse in Ireland was just very real, and it's a worldwide thing. But I, I, I wanted to say what I felt about some of these subjects, which, again, could be described as political, and I find I found myself writing poems that were not as um, tightly crafted as some of the things that I'm capable of doing. And so part of me was was saying, well, this this is somewhere between poetry and the editorial page. But anyway, that's what I did, and 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 I feel good about that because if you have these ideas about what's going on in the world but you're writing a kind of poetry that doesn't allow you to express those ideas, then probably you're doing something wrong. And that, that was what that was what I was motivated by. Well, that's what you are talking about before when you're saying that, you know, uh, people often tell stories about place and poetry is a way to do it, to, to do that in a roundabout way, but in a more compact form. And, you know, you don't have to necessarily tell a story as in a narrative poem, but it's a way of conveying a you know an idea in a in a way if you'd like um you know through through the concrete uh so they're miniature essays in a way i think sometimes that's right that's right and i'm glad you mentioned that because 
I also write nonfiction. I, I consider myself an essayist, mm -hmm. and to me, an essay is a poem. Mm -hmm. I don't know how other essayists feel about that, <laughs> but I know that's the only way that I can write an essay. It's like a poem, only it's more discursive. It's longer, mm -hmm. so one is free to develop at greater length some things that would be expressed in maybe just a couple of words in a poem. Mm -hmm. So to me, the, the disconnect between writing poetry and writing nonfiction is pretty much not a disconnect. The one, the longer form is just an extension of the shorter form. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, well, I'd like you to read another poem or two. Uh Daphne, you mentioned that, that I translate yes. in connection with my daughter. We both read Turkish. Her, her Turkish is better than mine, but we have a good... Because she lived in Istanbul for, for four years. And, How cool is that? Oh, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, I was the one who introduced her to the city. Uh-huh. And... I've never been able to live there. I, I've visited there off and on for, for God knows how many years, for about 50 years now. Wow. But we translate this poet who, in even in, Tur even in Turkey, is considered to be kind of a difficult and enigmatic poet. His name is more or less impossible to pronounce unless <laughs> you know how things go in Turkish. His name is Edip Jansever. Okay. And this is one that we did called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life. He put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three make nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and his fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. <laughs> I love the humor of that in the end of there. That's <laughs> <laughs> great, isn't it? Yeah, and it reminds me of, I don't know why I'm thinking of the Moors. I don't know if they went to Istanbul, but I should know this because I think of Spain usually and then different parts of um, like the upper, you know, northern Africa and stuff like yeah. that. But it just makes me think of math. And then it's just very, like you said, very concrete things. Um, totally concrete. And, simple. And, uh, one of, one of the things I really like about that poem is uh, three times three make nine. 
placed nine on the table, and then he put a pl in endlessness. He all these the two things: one, a mathematical concept, and then two, endlessness, a philosophical uh, abstraction. He just makes those so brilliantly concrete. Mm. So that's good. That kind of ties back into what we were talking about mm -hmm. about uh, the difference between the concrete and the abstract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's your daughter spent forty years in Istanbul. What was she? What was she doing when she was there? Well, she uh, went through the creative writing program at Sarah Lawrence College. Oh, okay. And when she graduated from college, she was working as a barista in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we were living at the time. And uh, being a barista is great, but it's not exactly a, a, what a person would want to be doing for the rest of her life. So when she graduated from college, I took her to Istanbul as a graduation present. And when, while we were there, she said, I really like this place. I, I think I want to move here. So <laughs> we, we went back to Ann Arbor. She saved up enough money from her barista job, and she moved over there. Wow. And at first when she was there, she worked in an advertising agency, and then after that she started teaching English as a second language, mm -hmm. L lived there for four years. So we're a good combination. We're, we're starting to translate a new John Severe book right now. Oh, that's so cool. We're just in the beginning stages of it. But we're a good combination, I think, because my Turkish is more academic um, uh -huh. and hers is more kind of street smart. Okay. That's, that is, that like, comes in handy because so all, all the things that happen that, you know, there's a lot of language that, uh, that doesn't translate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess this would be a good time to segue into to your your new your new book, um, Journeys into the Mind of the World, and I love the title. I, did I get it right this time? You did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have to say, uh, uh, let's just uh, so we're going to talk about that in the next half. I just want to say you're listening to the Poetry Show. This is Radio Boise, and I have Richard Tillinghast in the studio with me. I'm gonna we're gonna jump to a few messages, and we'll be right back. There has been a murder committed here. Then where's the victim? In the cellar. What? We at Radio Boise are proud to announce the debut of a new show, Stray Theater, Sundays from 5.30 p.m. to 6, right after the Poetry Show. Stray Theater will contain a little bit of everything, literary readings in the community, excerpts of public talks, interviews with performers, and full-blown radio dramas performed by local theater troops right here in the Radio Boise studios. That's Stray Theater, odds and ends and events of cultural significance with a focus on the community. Sundays at 5.30 p.m. on KRBX. Please join us. You're listening to Stray Theater. This is Daphne from the Poetry Show, and we're continuing the conversation with Richard Tillinghast into this second half of the hour. We're now discussing Journeys into the Mind of the World, a book of places, the latest book by Richard Tillinghast. Enjoy. So I guess I, I hit a lot of these places at a good time. One one of the things was, I didn't realize it at the time I first went to Europe in 1961. I wouldn't have thought about it at the time, but this was still a post-war Europe. It, it was still Europe that, I mean, they were, they were still, I mean, you could walk around in London, you could still see places, mm. you could still, still see bombed out 
places. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel as if I'm lucky to have gone there when I did. Yeah, well, for sure. I'm just so envious that things were so inexpensive when you were <laughs> there. They were so incredibly cheap. I mean, in <laughs> Paris, you stayed, I mean, granted that these were pretty cheap hotels, but yeah. in Paris, you stayed in a hotel that cost about a dollar fifty a night, you know, and well, I don't think you could find any place That's like that. That's amazing, anymore. yeah. Well, yeah. it's probably like a, a, well, I don't know, were, were, the, were some of the hotels similar to what hostels are like now, or? Yeah. Probably nicer, I don't know. <laughs> no, they weren't nicer, but one difference with a hostel was, in these hotels, at least you had your own room. They weren't right. very fancy, and, and uh, there were places you you stayed where you might find yourself scratching yourself quite a lot the next day. <laughs> I was just thinking about the bugs thing. You mentioned that in your in your, yeah. your book. Uh, <laughs> do you I mean, I got I stayed in in a motel, a cheap motel in Boise. As long as we're in Boise, I uh-huh. stayed in a cheap motel. I won't name name the motel. <laughs> Last summer, and I found that yes, I they did have bed bugs. Oh my gosh! I'm so sorry. it's it, it's happening even here in Boise. <laughs> it still exists, no matter where you go. <laughs> you don't have to be in New York City even. Um, <laughs> but um, well, you know, so do you feel like travel should be a prerequisite for writers? I mean, I don't know. It seems like well, there's some writers who maybe. Don't ever go anywhere, but and that's great. I mean, yeah. good for them. I, I, I just, and I'm not saying that in any kind of condescending way I, at all. I don't feel that way. But William Faulkner said that he was determined. He said, I felt as if I, if I just wrote about my own little postage stamp of, of Earth, everything was there. On the other hand, Faulkner had done things like he went to he couldn't get into the he couldn't get into the first world war in the united states so he went to canada and signed up in the canadian air force so he Hmm. had he doesn't he never talks about that he never talked about that but he had gone away and he saw his own little postage stamp of earth from a distance so Mm -hmm. he, he came back to it in the same way that i was talking about coming back uh, mm-hmm. uh, to Memphis, Tennessee. But this book, Journeys into the Mind of the World, I uh, it, it's subtitled A Book of Places, which is a perfect description mm-hmm. of the book. And and the cover kind of tell it's a sort of a trippy yeah, I was gonna cover. Say. And I was really pleased with what they came up with. I had absolutely no input into the cover but the staff artist at university of tennessee press came up with this oh, how cool. and what she did was okay the top part is from ireland then there's a, a traffic people crossing a street in london then there's an image that looks southern there's a city that's maybe someplace in india mm-hmm. and then uh, hawaii figures in there someplace mm-hmm. too but, but what the it's a book of places and the places are places that I've either lived in or traveled to. And so it's not, strictly speaking, a travel book in the ordinary sense, though I've done plenty of travel writing in my time. But uh, Journeys into the Mind of the World, 
not just, in other words, not just going to those places, but trying to enter more fully into the life of those places to try to understand something deeper about those cultures. Mm -hmm. And because the book covers places that I've traveled to and lived in, it also becomes a memoir. So I'm uh, kind of telling my life story. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine that I went to college with uh, from Arkansas called me up the other night. And I really respect the, tr the tradition of getting drunk and call and calling somebody up on the phone late at night. <laughs> Is that a tradition? You all know. Every, I guess so. It's, it's everybody knows. Yes. <laughs> everybody knows what that's like. So he called me up. I mean, this is this is my seventeenth book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when you put the poetry and the nonfiction together, and he called me up. He said, "Richard, you finally wrote a book." that people can read. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're like, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. Well, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> I, I, I think coming from him, it was a compliment. So, and I, I like that. I mean, poetry, poetry is a magical world to, to enter into. And, and everybody who's ever entered into that magical kingdom of poetry knows what that's like. But the world of nonfiction, it tends to be more a more accessible world. So that's that's kind of what I'm trying to say about the book. Yeah, I mean, just I really enjoyed you know you're just going from the south to you know India and places around around there, and um, you know, and you spend some time in Ireland and um, yeah, Ireland, England, England, and then as writing well. about Hawaii, and Hawaii. Um, which you which you live in part part of the year now, yeah, which is amazing. Um, one thing about Hawaii is the cliche about Hawaii is it's paradise, and people uh, people a lot of people will say, "Oh well, you live in paradise," but think about it. Paradise is something like let's say the Garden of Eden. It doesn't have a history. It's a mythical place. Time doesn't pass there. They, when people talk about heaven, they talk about a thousand years as if it was just one day. But real places have histories. And Hawaii has a history too. Mm -hmm. It has, and it's not necessarily a pretty history because it's a history of American colonialism yeah. Uh, there are a lot of people, native Hawaiians, who would say, well, Hawaii really should not be a part of the United States. It only became a part of the United States uh, through military force. Uh, Hawaii, Hawaii is a kingdom. You know, they, we should still have our own king and queen. Mm. Well, I think if you put it to a vote in Hawaii, that would get voted down. I mean, mm. there are just so many advantages to being part of the United States, and that's kind of a big subject. Mm. But uh, so I wrote a lot about the history of Hawaii, and I think mm -hmm. that would probably be uh, interesting to people who are going there for the first time to realize it's not just paradise with beautiful beaches and everything, which, of course, it is, 
but it's it's a more complex thing. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, and uh, Garrett Hungo wrote wrote about that, of course, quite a bit, just because he was from there, of course. Yeah, well, Garrett's a, a an old friend of mine and a yeah. really good friend of mine, and Garrett Garrett and I both spend a lot of time on Facebook, <laughs> and I think Garrett kind of uh, re-experiences Hawaii vicariously through the things I post mm. on Facebook because he's he's a native of uh, Hawaii mm. and I'm a a blow-in as they you know, the term they use in Ireland. So it's nice to I enjoy one of the things I enjoy about living in Hawaii is is being able to kind of share that mm-hmm. with Garrett who's a Hawaiian who doesn't get to live there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um do you, are are there different because, you know, there's obviously different islands and stuff. Are, are there different kind of places where, I mean, obviously there's different subcultures and stuff, but um, how do you feel you've kind of, what's what's like a, a, a typical, like, weekend and, like, maybe place that you, do you go, like, do you explore a lot on the different islands? I'm just trying to imagine, like, how welcoming i guess it is like do you sometimes feel that like the the weight of that you know yeah i do i sometimes feel i mean i imagine it'd be hard it'd be hard for me you know just because yeah i think it would it would be a very interesting experience for you and a learning it's been a learning experience Mm -hmm. for me because um there's this thing about whiteness and um i think a lot of people whiteness is generally considered to be normal so people say oh well there was a a mm-hmm. black woman you know or there's an asian woman but no, but people would be less likely to say okay there's a, a white woman and right. i think one of the things that those of us who are trying to be a little bit more aware of what's going on is that uh, whiteness is an ethnicity too mm-hmm. and most of us have the experience of being constantly in the majority. And one of the interesting things about living in Hawaii is that people who look like you and me represent about 15% of the population. So oh, wow. the, the other people are uh, native Hawaiians who actually uh, would represent about the same fraction of the totality as uh, white people or Howleys, as they're called in Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. And then they're, um, they're Japanese, they're Filipinos, mm-hmm. they're people from the Marshall Islands, they're, they're other uh, Polynesians, and they're uh, people who immigrated to Hawaii from Portugal. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting experience to be part of the minority. I think one mm-hmm. learns quite a bit from that but a tip uh i mean i i I work Uh, i'm a the typical day for me involves a lot of time being in my study writing my girlfriend with whom i live is a painter so she's painting in her studio i'm writing in my study uh hawaiians like to spend a lot of time outdoors so when we get through with our work then a typical thing would be just to go to the beach, and it's really fun to go to the beach and hang out and see all the uh, see all the different families, mm-hmm. the 
you know, the Japanese, the Hawaiians, the Filipinos, all the locals. Mm -hmm. And there's a, I, the big island where I live is the less, least visited of, of the islands. Really? It is. Oh, yeah. The most tip, people, uh, people would typically go as tourists to Maui or the, or Oahu, okay. the island where Honolulu is, yeah. uh, Waikiki Beach and everything. Um, there, the, the town or city on the big island is Hilo. There's a, there's a little song that somebody wrote about Hilo, I think maybe in the 1940s. It has, it has some lines in it that people were, were just so hyper aware of race and ethnicity in our time that nobody would ever write a song like this anymore. So it's kind of amusing. Uh, part of the song goes, uh, see the smiling faces of all the many races and you'll be smiling too. Nobody would write a song like that now, but it's true. And it's really cool. I mean, President Obama came from mm -hmm. Hawaii, and the whole idea of a like, rainbow coalition, mm -hmm. that's a typical Hawaiian thing. Yeah. And I think that because Obama grew up in Hawaii, he really was less aware of race than he would have been had he actually grown up in Chicago or right. Memphis or New York. Or sure. Something. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I feel kind of similarly. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting because I'm um, where I grew up in California. It's like it was Carpentria. It was a very, very so many kinds of people live there. Yeah. And on my block, there was a, a family from Iran. There's a, a half black, half white family. There was me. My mom's from Mexico. I'm latina even though i don't look like it that's always a weird thing right but yeah but it's like i loved i i didn't think about it it was just there were so many different kinds of people there and lots of languages and it wasn't until i moved to oregon that i was like this is like wow <laughs> really homogenous <laughs> why are there so many white people so right? it's interesting so that's an interesting thing um yeah. you know and you know that's one of the tragic things that's happening in our country now mm. is that somehow the I don't know, the white majority is reasserting itself in a really ugly way. And and I just hope that we'll be able to get through this period without too much damage. Well, because it's it's not... Well, anyways, I mean, it's just that we're all people and it's like, it's... Uh, I know it's not that simple, but... It's true, we're... Yeah. It's interesting, this idea of, of racial purity isn't something that, it, it, it simply doesn't exist, right? I mean, we're all such a combination of so many different uh, cultures. And if we would only accept that, yeah. um, if you listen to people play music and, and sing songs, if you, if you compare the difference between uh, a European approach to music and an American approach to music, I think it's on some level we're uh, we're so influenced by African American culture and particularly by African American music. Mm. We just don't. Oh, we're yeah. not even aware of it. I mean, rock and roll. That's where it came from. That's so. right. Uh, the blues. Who <laughs> has that Muddy Waters song or or BB King's? I can't remember. Uh, the blues had a baby and they named it rock and roll. Oh yes. Yeah. It's but it's. Yeah, it's just interesting. 
how much of a mis- mixture there are in pla- certain places. And I went to I went to Hawaii when I was very young, but I don't remember very much about it. I just remember the black sand beaches. Yeah. And uh, hula dancing with a Hawaii dan- the Hawaiian dancers because I got on stage with them because they said <laughs> we're gonna start dancing now and I said oh okay and so I went on yeah. stage because I thought they they were like join us and I thought they meant we wanted to, they wanted us to go on stage so. That's so cool. I'm glad you did that. <laughs> but I mean, and I'm sure they were very welcome. Oh yeah, they thought it was great. Yeah. But I mean, I was a little five year old, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, so okay, and you're going back to you're actually on your way to Memphis on a road trip. Uh, another mm-hmm. kind of iconic American kind of pastime. Um, I don't know. Do you feel? Uh, that the book that you just wrote is kind of it's interesting because you're you're kind of you're writing you wrote about a few of the places that you're you're going in this this trip yeah. in the book um do you feel like anything's changed even since you wrote it because i know this has probably been a work in progress for a while yeah and that's been fascinating because memphis was totally segregated when i was a child and it's fascinating to see how unsegregated the South is becoming. And a lot of people would just definitely not buy this idea. But if you want to go to a place where there's a really easy, where there has become, developed, a really easy relationship between uh, blacks and whites, try Mississippi. Hmm. Who would have thought? But now it's, there's just... I mean, there are, there are always going to be, there's always going to be a very small percentage on both sides that just hate, where hate is predominant. On the other hand, the, the just easygoingness between whites and blacks and the courtesy that's shown, part of this is the, you know, Southerners are kind of tend to be very warm people and um, so yeah, I've noticed a lot of changes. It's really, really interesting things that I, I never would have dreamed of mm. when I was a child. So well, that's great. That's hopeful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard of Oxford. It's supposed to be like one of these up and coming places. So Oxford is a very cool place. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a I mean, it's a food destination for one thing. That's the new thing, isn't it? You go somewhere because of the food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least I do. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um. And I, you know, I guess that's a good way to think about it, right? It's like, I guess um, we, it's good bringing it back to writing and the concrete, what's right in front of us, you know, it's like, how can we replace what's told to us in the narrative of what's grabs the headlines? Because not to, because I think that the media is very important and not to bash it at all. Um, but, you know, just pointing, pointing out the fact that, you know, in, in lots of commercial media, what makes headlines is what's most sensational, right? Yeah. So, like, it's it's really important for all of us, I think, to pay attention to what's in front of us and to, to write it down um, and to to realize that that's a reality and not necessarily everything that we see on... I mean, just there's different narratives for, to be had. Yeah. That's all. Um, we have uh, lots of... We have democracy now here on Radio Voice, and you know, and I really value what the media does for us. So it's you know, it's just that it's interesting. Um, and, it, and, and it, it is because people, I mean, poetry is we, another narrative, right? It is, and, <laughs> and, and 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 maybe it's important to. 
I mean, I know it's important to create a hopeful narrative and a positive narrative. Uh, um, it's kind of like that movie, you know, The Field of Dreams, you, you, you build it and they will come. Yeah. Narrative is like that, too. Mm -hmm. And that, that was one of the things uh, that was really important in Seamus Heaney's poetry to get back to Ireland mm -hmm. is he lived in such troubled times and he grew up in the north of I Ireland where the, um, what they call the Troubles, right. were going on. Yes. And, and he's a writer who established a hopeful narrative, which some people might have um, dismissed as wishful thinking. Mm. But if you think about wishful thinking and take that in its positive sense, rather than in the, you know, uh, rather than the sense of, well, that's, it's unreal. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's one of the things that poetry and literature can do for us. Hmm. I like that. Well, that's, that's hopeful. And I think that's a, a good note to end on. Uh, I think we've been, believe it or not, talking for about an hour so <laughs> this is really fun yeah so thank you richard um and your latest book journeys into the mind of the world that's that's out now uh, what's the press that published it uh university of tennessee press that's right and uh it's a great it's a great read i feel like i've traveled to all these places just just because of having read it um is there anything else you'd like to to add before before we go <laughs> no it's just great talking to you Daphne you're this this is a great show you're, you're really easy to talk to oh. I've had a lot of fun well thank you and I'm it's an honor to talk to you and I will um, play something that uh, that you've done musically as the outro here <laughs> okay. um, um, because you know you have that too so um, thank you so much Richard for being on the show today oh and, you're so welcome and you have uh, safe travels through through the uh, you know, the rest of your trip. I'm, I'm envious. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And that concludes our conversation, or my conversation with Richard Tillinghast. Again, the book that we were discussing, the second half primarily, is called Journeys into the Mind of the World, A Book of Places. And it's out from the University of Tennessee Press. I'll link to that in the Poetry Show's uh, page today if you're interested in more information about that. I just wanted to read the first paragraph or two of it though because we didn't really have a chance to um to read an excerpt and it's it's really huge it's really exciting uh, and fun i feel like i've traveled all, all over the world because of reading it uh he mentions he starts with um his homeland kind of area in tennessee and then goes to india and nepal as well as ireland england um and then back to Tennessee and then Hawaii, where he also lives part of the year. So this is the first chapter. It's called My Mother's Trip to Paris. My life as a traveler began in 1930, 10 years before I was born. That was the year my mother made her trip to Paris. Mother's time in the city of light glowed in her memory like a magic lantern along the journey that made up her young life before she married. She spoke of it often. A thick scrapbook with My Trip to Europe printed on the cover, its browning pages pasted full of souvenirs, crumbling and falling apart when handled, emerged from the attic of the house where I grew up. Along with the scrapbook came a thick but smaller diary, seven inches by four, black leather, the gold leather letters of the word record faded. 
I open my mother's diary at random and come across simply phrased lovely sentences like, I'm riding on a boat on Lake Lucerne and it's about 5.30 in the afternoon and it's raining. It sounds like Hemingway. Again, that was Journeys into the Mind of the World, A Book of Places by Richard Tillinghast. I'm going to leave you with a poem called Tea by Richard Tillinghast as well. And I hope you've enjoyed the show today. This is Daphne Stanford signing off. Read if you read, write if you write. Have a very poetic week. If you're interested in more information about Richard's work, I will have that posted on the Poetry Show page. And I hope you've enjoyed the show today. Take care. Tea. Erase a statue of Buddha, eyes lidded on non-existence. Erase topiary, take away red paint and gilding if you can. This is a place to sit for a while, the mats fresh, smell of rain and rushes. A crane glides without moving its wings over the stream's length. Peonies bloom in silk. Is the stream a part of nature or has it been altered by the sages? A shower blows up among cypresses of trail. master is away. Otherwise, how should I be here? Over foothills scrolling, mist brightens and evanesces. Families of monkeys move over the ridge above through jungle, mist frozen on their muzzles. Brown smoke from cooking fires finds a path up here from where the nomads camp. God knows what they are burning. Then the clear green tea. Green, like water at the bottom of the ocean. Hot as a bowl of soup. Behind us, the trek over mountains, hand-drawn maps, bad knees and brambles. Who knows what thundery warlord or dakini caused the wind to blow the clouds from one side of the mountain to the other? Where the trail switchbacks above us, two immortals play at chess.